1 Samuel 24 this morning, 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks, whatever that is. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. There's that word again, right? And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Do you remember from Judges several months ago the story of Ehud, the one-armed man, assassinated the king of Moab, whose name was Eglon, while he was relieving himself alone in his chambers. You remember that story? At that time, Israel celebrated Ehud as a hero. So imagine how tempting it must have been, knowing that story, for David to kill Saul. And that is the dilemma of this story. Is this God's providence? Or is it temptation? David's men seem to think that God is providing this opportunity. That David should take advantage of this opportunity. And would we blame David for killing Saul after everything that's happened? So how do we know the difference between providence and temptation? The answer to that question is knowing God's word. Knowing the difference between providence and temptation is knowing God's word. The king of Moab was a pagan enemy. Saul, however, had been anointed king by God. So David would have been wrong to take the king's life in such a dishonorable way. And so I'm going to argue that this was a temptation. It was not a blessing or an opportunity. Ralph Davis calls this the temptation of the shortcut. See, we live in a microwave culture. We want everything quickly. We do not like waiting on anything. We certainly don't like waiting on God to do things that we feel like we need done. We pray for God to provide something, and then we try to take shortcuts to get that thing. Sort of like Abraham. But that's not how God works. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. 
And so we have to learn to be patient with our own growth and with the growth of others um, because that's just how God operates. Okay, So that's kind of a side point, but an, a, a, an important one. But let's find out what David decided to do next. It says, Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So David decided not to kill Saul, which was the right decision. Instead, he decided to cut the corner off of Saul's robe. But I want you to notice that even that bothered David's conscience. You see, tearing Saul's robe was not just a fun prank. It was symbolic of Saul losing his glory. Remember, we said the robes of the king were symbolic of his glory. That that weightiness is where the word glory comes from. Remember also that when Saul tore a piece of Samuel's robe, Samuel prophesied that Saul's kingdom would be ripped from him in a similar way. That's what all of this symbolizes. And David seems to realize this and it bothers his conscience. Why? Because David doesn't want to grab the kingdom. He wants God to give it when God is ready. He also made a covenant with Jonathan that he would not cut off Saul's family. And so David realizes this, that he made a mistake, and he repents. And then he does something crazy. Look at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Why does David... Pursue Saul out of the cave. Now, surely David knows that he's risking his life. There are 3,000 men outside this cave, the best soldiers in Israel, and they have been hunting David to kill him. And look at how David speaks to Saul. David bows his face to the ground. He calls Saul his Lord and his king. He calls Saul the Lord's anointed. He calls him father. David shows Saul complete respect and and honor. He pleads with Saul to reconsider. In other words, David is laying his life physically on the line to attempt reconciliation with a crazy man. There have been many shadows of Christ in the story of David, but this one might be the most theologically significant so far. David has no reason to trust Saul. Saul has proven to be insane. Saul is David's enemy in the truest sense of the word enemy. And that's what makes this so theologically significant. David is acting out the most beautiful thing we know about the character of God. David is showing us what it looks like to love our enemy. And his love for Saul is obviously stronger than his fear of Saul. And yet, I want, to, I want to make something else very clear. Notice also, David is not trusting Saul to make the right choice. He's trusting God to make the right choice. And this is important, okay? He's not letting Saul off the hook, but he is leaving the matter in God's hands. Notice he says, may the Lord be the judge between me and you. Okay? In other words, 
If vengeance is necessary, then God will provide it. It's not going to be me, right? That's not my job, David's saying. My job is to trust God and love my enemy. In other words, love is always the right choice for us, even when it concerns our worst enemy. But let's be honest, okay? This is crazy talk, right? (laughs) Because who actually does this? Who among us can say, I'm great at loving my enemy? (laughs) Top of the class. No, right? Part of the reason I'm convinced that God must have written the Bible is because stories like this are too crazy for human writers to make up. What kind of man shows this kind of not just bravery, but love to an enemy? Respect, honor. Who does this? Even the Bible, the Bible itself knows that this is crazy. Okay? The Apostle Paul marvels over this exact mystery in Romans 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He's talking about us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Paul says. Okay? In other words, We don't even do this for good people. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die, right? So he's entertaining the possibility, but it's still kind of crazy. People don't die for other people. Verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from Him, from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul says we were the ungodly. We were still sinners when God decided to do this and made it happen. We were enemies of God under His wrath. Paul says barely anyone would die for a good person. What sort of person would die for his enemies? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the true David. Jesus offered himself up to his enemies. He let us kill him. And in a remarkable mystery of God's Grace, God used the death of Jesus 
to reconcile us to himself. How are we even supposed to respond to something like that? See, in order to accept that, to believe that, to, to, to put our trust in that, we have to recognize. It starts with recognizing that we're those people. We were the enemies of God. Me. You. We're Saul in this story. And how does Saul respond? Let's find out. Verse 16. Soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son? David, remember Saul disowned David a couple chapters back. Calls him son. Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Even an insane man is shocked and amazed. He says, so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you will surely, you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. David and his men went up to the stronghold. Okay, So why does David go to a stronghold? Probably because he doesn't trust Saul. <laughs> and he shouldn't. He should not. Saul for now is having a moment of clarity and in God's providence is demonstrating to us how we should respond to God's grace. He backs off. He even recognizes that David will be king. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that it doesn't last. Okay? But for today, for our purposes today, Saul's response is a very helpful way to think about our own response to the gospel. He says to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And that, friends, is actually a really, really good, simple summary of grace. Jesus is the righteous one, not me, not you. I deserve evil, 
And in Christ I received good. That's what the word grace means. I deserve punishment. I got ice cream. Basically, Saul is so moved by the reality of the situation that he repents, at least momentarily. Saul knows that he should be lying dead, literally, in his own excrement at the back of this cave. And he's not. And that is, as he understands it, rightly so, an undeserved kindness. Of the kind that will melt the hearts of even the worst of sinners. The idea is, if not for the grace of God, that would be me. That should be me. And that is the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to come to us as shocking news that melts our hearts. That crushes our pride. That leaves us amazed. And it can't do any of that to us if we think we have earned God's favor. If we think that God loves us because we're good Christians, we come from a good family, we do our diligence, we go to church, we only do the right things, we avoid people that do the bad things. If we think that God's love fell upon us because we're getting something right, we're missing the point. The gospel cannot melt the hearts of people who already think they're righteous. It's been a while since um, I've told this story. It's one of my favorites. I apologize if you've heard it a dozen times, but it's a lady named Catherine Larson um, spent some time in Rwanda as a missionary. And she published a book uh, with stories from her trip. Rwanda, if you don't remember, back in the 90s, it was a country where hundreds of thousands of people died in an ethnic genocide. And this is uh, one of the stories from her book. She writes this. She says, When I was in Rwanda, a beautiful 17-year-old survivor of the 1994 genocide told me a secret. Rain pelted the tin roof so loudly that I had to lean in to hear what Joy, that was her name, what Joy had to say. In a near whisper, Joy said, Forgiveness is a gift one gives to change the heart of the offender. Catherine writes, This profound truth came from a young lady who had forgiven her neighbors who had brutally murdered her own father with machetes. Forgiveness is a gift, she writes. It's not something one can deserve or earn. 
Like all gifts, it costs the one who offers it more than the one who receives it. I believe that the extreme costliness of forgiveness has the power to call forth something from the receiver. And because the gift is so extravagant, so undeserved, so lavish of all gifts, it is most able to mirror the divine nature of self-giving love. And that, brothers and sisters, is the point. We have earned the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. In Christ, we're being offered the love of God. He is offering us reconciliation and adoption, a hope and a future, but we have to receive it with empty hands. It has to be received with empty hands, with humility. As Augustine said, God gives where He finds empty hands. And the people in our lives whom we need to forgive... And maybe it would help for you to pause for a second and think, who might that be? Who is wrong to me? Who is my enemy? Who's the person I don't even want to be in the same room with? I don't want to run into them at Walmart. I would just rather they didn't exist. Who is that person? They have nothing to offer us either. Nothing they can say, nothing they can do is going to fix how you feel about them. But if God gives us the grace to fill their hands with forgiveness and leave the vengeance up to Him, He can do something with that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Forgiveness is so incredibly hard for us to fathom. It's so impossible, really, until you crush our pride. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who've heard the gospel a thousand times, it doesn't matter. We still need to hear it. And we really need your spirit to hear it fresh to be amazed by it all over again because as Christians we start to believe that we're doing enough good things and we start to forget that's not why you love us. So bring us back before the foot of the cross. Bring us back to that place where we remember We are only here by Your grace. Nothing to offer You. Nothing in our hands we bring. The only victory we have is in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.